O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 88, which is a psalm appointed for today, Friday, March the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and you listen to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We're continuing our look at um, the prophecy of Jeremiah today. We're in uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 8, and then skipping forward to 14 to 20. Um, the gospel today is John 8 verses 33 to 47, and the epistle is Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 6, the first 11 verses there. So in the Jeremiah prophecy, it it begins with the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all I command you. So you shall be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. So the Lord's telling them that that you've got to go back, that the entire nation needs to go back and review and remember the covenant that was made at Sinai after they had come out of Egypt. And, and it's the fulfillment of the promises God made to the forefathers, not for the sake of this generation that was, that was saved from slavery, but no, for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those with whom God had initiated the covenant. And now this family is now called Israel after Jacob. And so he's telling them, go back and review this thing. If you want to know what you have to do to restore confidence and to restore covenant, that's what it is. You have to listen and obey. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. In other words, they didn't obey or even listen. But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And the, if, if you remember, if, if you're new to the... Uh, to the show, you might not know this, actually, but one of the most um, defining moments in the history of, of Israel from their perspective is their response to God's offer of a covenant at Mount Sinai. When Moses has gone up first and met with God and comes back down and he says, God wants to enter into a covenant with you, the, the thing that they point to more than anything else that ennobles the, the people who were there at Sinai, is this. They said, we will do and we will listen. And that's not the way we understand it in uh, Christianity, but, it, but it's the way that it's properly read, and it's the way that they have self-identified for all these years. Because what they believe is, is that they committed 
to doing first and then listening. We're, we're going to start by obedience, and then we're going to continue in obedience as you teach us more. But we believe that you're a good a good God. Therefore, we're willing to start down the path of obedience before we even know very much. And and that is one of their most important um, self-identifications. And so it's it, it, in this passage, what we see is, remember, we've already seen twice, listen to my voice and do all I command you. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. You didn't obey your voice or incline their ear. So it, it's exactly that, that, um, that, thing that they they count most important is exactly what God's condemning here. You've not done those things. This generation is not doing that commitment that was made at Sinai. Therefore, he's he's talking specifically to Jeremiah here, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done so many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt? I mean, your sins have piled up so high. He says that there's not even sacrifices possible for this. You've, you've, you've gone way beyond the bounds of whatever was expected of you, and, and the sacrificial system won't work because you're not repenting. You're just making sacrifices so that you can send more. He says, the Lord once called you a green olive tree, a beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and his branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. They have another God that they're trusting in for the fruitfulness of the land because that's Baal is a fertility God. So that's exactly what he's saying. You're making offerings to Baal as though he were the one who were giving you the productive land. I'm the one who gave it to you, and I'm the one who makes it productive. It it is an interesting thing. It's something that even Moses didn't really see. Moses said, you know, you're going to forget. You're going to forget it was the Lord's strength and his mighty arm that brought you in and gave you this land and who, who is the one who blesses the productivity of the land, you're going to forget that, and you're going to think you did it yourself. Moses didn't even envision them going after other gods and ascribing the work of the Lord to Baal. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes, saying, let's destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. This is Jeremiah's own complaint to the Lord, because they've come against him because he dared tell them anything uh, like this. In the gospel, Jesus is, is confronting a similar problem and a similar set of people. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That is one of the most bizarre statements you'll ever read coming from a group of Jewish people. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Really? You've never been enslaved to anyone. You were not enslaved in Egypt. You were not enslaved in, in, in Babylon. What in the world are you talking about? How could you possibly say that you've never been slaves. Well, they certainly have been. If you're offspring of Abraham, you have certainly been slaves. 
And Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is a, uh, an image that Paul picks up on, it's particularly in, um, in Romans. If you practice sin, and, and what that means doesn't, doesn't mean <laughs> is if you fall into sin, if you accidentally sin, if you want. No, what he says practices sin, what he means is, is that anyone who commits themselves to the practice of a sin— so, in other words, it's an intentional choice to do this, and it's an intentional choice to continue to do it. <clears throat> the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I've seen from my, with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. It's a powerful um, statement that Jesus is making here um, that, that says, I can set you free. I can set you free permanently, and I can do that, um, for, set you free from sin by the giving of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And, you know, that, that's exactly their self-identification. Abraham is our father, and God was in covenant with Abraham and promised that he would be in covenant with his offspring forever. Therefore, that's our claim. That's our identity, is is that we're the people who are the offspring of Abraham, and that's why we're in covenant with God, because God made the covenant with our father that he would keep covenant with his descendants. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. And it's, it's the same kind of persecution that, that came against Jeremiah and came against most of the prophets. And it's the stuff that Jesus actually um, speaks about in the last week of his life when he's teaching in the temple. And he's calling them out as hypocrites. He, he's saying, this is the things you did to the prophets that were before me. And, and they're saying, Abraham is our father. And, and he's saying, no, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And that is certainly, we, we interpret that first sentence, we, we were not born of sexual immorality, to be a statement about Jesus' birth. Because the rumor was is that, that he was uh, the son of a, a Roman centurion or some other um, extramarital affair that Mary had prior to her marriage to Joseph. And so when they say, we were not born of sexual immorality, you've got to put the stress on the we. Because when they say that, what they're saying is, in opposition to your birth, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And the the funny thing is, is that what they're doing is they're denying that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Because they claim that he is their Father, but he is, in every sense of the word, Jesus' Father. We have him only as um, sort of that attenuated uh, Abba, Father in heaven relationship that's mediated through the covenant. Jesus has an unmediated um, relationship with God the Father. Ours, theirs, Everybody who's ever existed have a mediated relationship. That relationship, that, that father-children relationship in, in Israel is mediated by the covenant. It's mediated by the terms of the covenant. It's a conditional relationship. You can get yourself out of that relationship. 
and you can do that by being disobedient children. Jesus is the perfect child of the Father, obedient in every way. And God is indeed his Father through the Holy Spirit indwelling and overshadowing Mary. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, I can't imagine anything much more offensive than that, to speak those words to a Jew that you're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires would be a, not a corrective. It would be the most offensive thing you could possibly say to a group of Jewish people. He said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And, and that's exactly what he tried to get across to Nicodemus in John 3, was that you have to be born again. You have to be born of water and the Spirit in order to know these things. And that was Jesus' complaint against Nicodemus, was you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? But, but the reality of what he's saying here is, is that, that you all have been misled. You have been lied to, and you have believed the lies. And now I'm trying to tell you the truth, and you won't come to me because you're so accustomed to the lie. And, and it's as though a veil lies over their hearts, Paul says. And so there's something that's missing. And that thing that's missing is literally the giving of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to know the truth and to walk in the truth. It's a painful thing to hear Jesus say this to the Jewish people. And, and what makes it worse is how this gets misinterpreted. And I'm going to speak into that for a minute because I've heard it a lot. And I've heard it a lot over the last few months even. I've spoken with people. When I worked at Amazon, there were two different people that I spoke to that talked about this group called the Black Hebrews. And the Black Hebrews believe that Jesus was one of them that he, he was not, th those people who are in Israel, the people that call themselves Jews, the people that we read about in the, Old, in, in the New Testament that Jesus interacted with, what they say is those people are not Jews, actually. They, they're, of, they're literally of the devil. And that there's this other group of people called the Black Hebrews who really are the chosen people of God. Well, you know, I, I, I listened in both instances to these people talk, and since then Suzanne's actually had some contact with them. And it sounds a whole lot like people that I have met somewhere along the way, you know, in, in my life, that, that are white supremacists who believe roughly the same thing. They believe that the Jews are not Jews at all. They're Canaanites. That they're horrible people. That they're, um, they're of the devil, literally. That, that this has gone in a wrong direction. And, and the first guy that told me that, he, he went through this whole thing, and he was telling me that he, that he followed this guy who, who had a lot of good teaching on Genesis, and he said, you would probably like him because you really love Genesis. I said, well, tell me something that he teaches. And then he went into that, this whole thing of, the, that's, the, that's the line of Canaan, the, the Canaan, the cursed line, is actually those people. 
And my response to him was, well, what do the people of God actually look like? He was like, you know, people like us, white people, people from the British Isles. It's like, oh, my gosh. And then he went on to tell me that, that in, when, when Joseph took Mary and the family and left because of the persecution of Herod, that they actually went to Britain. Well, the Scripture says they went to Egypt, so I'm not sure how to read Scripture if Egypt means Britain. And so then there's a guy that I've talked to recently who wants to go into all this nonsense, too. Well, it's racism. That's all it is, period, end of sentence. I don't care whether you're black or brown or white. It doesn't make any difference to me. It's all racism if you're saying that very thing. Jesus is not saying that you people are not real Jews. I mean, that's not what he's saying at all here, but it infuriates me when people start this nonsense. So, but I just, so I just wanted to say that in case you run across people like that. That is not at all what Jesus is saying, because he, he said that he came to the lost sheep of Israel. And where did he stay his entire life? His entire ministry was there in the land. So don't start that nonsense with me that those people are not really Jews. They're the people Jesus went to. So when we come to this Romans passage, Paul, remember, is making the argument that that um, that grace overcomes everything. And so he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this goes back to that practice of sin that Jesus talked about. Any, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, grace can be more the more we sin, right? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you were baptized, that was more than just salvation after you die, is what Paul's argument is. He said, no, you died. You were already dead. You were dead in your trespasses. You've already experienced salvation because you were already dead. But you were raised in baptism out of that water into new life. And we can't practice sin because we were raised into that new life and we were given the Holy Spirit. So, so we quench the Spirit and we fight against the Spirit when we continue to live a, a life that's, that's committed to the practice of what we know is sinful. He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin, which is what Jesus said. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's already passed through death and was resurrected from death, so it no longer has any dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so he is giving the same message that Jesus did, but but he is Jesus is saying, you have been deceived, and that's the problem. You've been deceived by these by the teaching that you've received. So the leaders there have, have misled them, and they've tied up these burdens on them, and and yoked them, and and weren't willing to lift a finger to help the people, and they left them in that bondage to sin. 
And it's that bondage to sin, that enslavement to sin, that characterized the people of Jeremiah's time that God's talking to. Is is that you're so blinded by by your prosperity or by whatever it is that you're experiencing, you're blinded to the reality of sin and to how important it is and to how much you need to walk away from it. And I'm not going to continue to put up with you so long as you continue to practice this and, and even deny that it is sin. And we're good at that. We're good at denying things are sin because, well, either we do them and we don't want to change, or we love the people who do them, and we, we don't want to, you know, kind of upset them by speaking the truth. Jesus didn't have those same kind of scruples. <laughs> he didn't mind telling them, you know, he didn't mind telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. He didn't mind telling these people, you're your father the devil. He didn't mind calling the Pharisees and scribes hypocrites. And there's a reason for that, because it matters. It matters ultimately and eternally that we agree with God on the nature of sin. We agree with him first on what constitutes sin, and then two, we agree with him on the serious consequences of sin.